we're starting a new sermon series on the book of Mark this morning, the Gospel of Mark. Mark is one of the four biographies of Jesus that begin the New Testament. And before we jump into this book, I think it's useful to know a little bit about the author and about how the book came together. So Mark became a follower of Jesus and a companion of the disciples very early on, possibly even before Jesus's crucifixion. There's this unnamed young man mentioned in Mark chapter 14 who is in the garden of Gethsemane with the disciples the night that Jesus is arrested. And many commentators believe that it was Mark himself. And he's also mentioned multiple times in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters as an early leader and missionary in the church. And then around 60 AD, when the apostle Peter was imprisoned in Rome, when he was awaiting execution, it seems like what happened is that Mark was either with him, with him or he went to find him, and he said, tell me everything that you can remember about your time with Jesus. And he wrote this biography based primarily on interviews with Peter. The first, there's a first century bishop named Papias who tells us Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered. Now, there's this common narrative that maybe for like the first three or four hundred years of Christianity, there were all of these stories and myths about Jesus, true accounts and fanciful tales that were kind of going around, and all of them were treated with equal credibility and authority. And then somewhere in like the fourth or fifth century, a pope or an emperor came along and he said, we're going to consolidate power by consolidating the stories. And that is when the Bible, as we know it, was invented. And I want you to hear loud and clear that that is just not true. Uh, that is a false narrative. Very soon after the death and resurrection of Jesus, a few books were widely recognized and copied and circulating as the official, reliable, firsthand sources about the life of Jesus, and those are the books that we have in our Bible today. These books weren't written uh, in isolation. They were written within a well-connected group of early Christians, of Jesus' earliest followers, which means that if someone had made something up, there would have been plenty of eyewitnesses around to say, that's not what happened. That's not how that story happened. But do you know what every person who I've mentioned by name so far in this sermon has in common? They were all martyred because of what they were proclaiming about Jesus. Peter and Mark and Paul and Papias, not to mention many others, were killed because they were telling everyone that they met, Jesus rose from the dead. He is the most important person who has ever lived. God incarnate, Lord and Savior. And when the powers that be came along and said, you stop telling people that or we're going to kill you, they said, we can't stop telling the truth about Jesus. Mark wrote this biography because he believed that it is important. In fact, it is absolutely essential for every person to have the chance to know and respond to Jesus. It is essential for you and I to know the real Jesus and to know him demands some sort of response to him. Now, one more thing before we jump in, okay? Because Mark was a real, unique human being just like you and me, the book that he wrote has its own unique style and emphases. We believe that God inspired the writing of the Bible, but we don't believe that he erased the personalities of the real people who wrote the Bible. Just the opposite. God loves to use particular, peculiar personalities to, to show real people true things about Jesus, to highlight different things about 
Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John emphasize different details, that, which means that we get four different perspectives meant to engage our minds and our hearts in different ways. And as it pertains to Mark, there are two things to know about his unique style that are going to come up again and again in this gospel. The first is that in the original Greek that Mark wrote in, he writes in the present tense. Okay? We might miss this in our English translations, but in Greek, he often uses the present tense. And so instead of saying, Jesus went to Galilee and healed many people, and then he went to Judea and cast out a demon, the way that Mark writes is more like, so Jesus goes to Galilee and he heals all of these people. And then he travels to Judea and he kicks out a demon. He goes there, he does this, he says that. And the reason that Mark writes that way is because he wants us to imagine ourselves into these stories. Mark writes in the present tense because he wants us to be present to what is happening. He is inviting you to use your imagination to be there, to pay close attention, and to watch the drama unfold. And the second unique thing about Mark is that Mark's book is often called the gospel of action. Right, so Mark's favorite transition word is immediately. Jesus does this, and then immediately he goes and does that. And you even see it in verse 12 of our passage this morning. So whereas the biographies that Matthew and Luke wrote give lots of attention to the words that Jesus said, Mark puts more emphasis on what Jesus did. And the book of Mark rushes toward the cross. The whole story that Mark writes is hurtling towards Jesus' death on the cross, almost as if Mark is saying the point of everything else that Jesus did arrives at the cross. The most important thing that he did happened at the cross. And so think about this. If the greatest person to ever live did everything that he did in order to die on a cross, what could that mean? What would be the implications of that stunning reality? And that's what we're going to try to find out together as we work through the book of Mark. Our passage this morning, Mark 1, verses 1 through 12. Mark 1, 1 through 12. It'll be up here on the screen if you want to follow along. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. And as soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us this morning 
through your word. We don't just want more information, we want transformation. Would you open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word? And would you grow us more and more into the people that you are calling us to be? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now the first verse of Mark really encapsulates what the whole book is about. Verse one says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. This is where we're gonna spend most of our time this morning, just on this first verse. Mark starts this story with the same word that both Genesis and the Gospel of John use as the start of the story. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mark starts his book with the same word, the beginning and in so doing, he's hinting at two important two truths, two truths that might at first seem contradictory, but are actually crucial for understanding Jesus and what he is up to when he comes into the world. The coming of Jesus entails both continuity and a certain discontinuity with the larger story that has been going on from the beginning, okay? Continuity and discontinuity, or we could say there is an expected connectedness, an expected harmony to the story that Mark is telling with the rest of the story, but there's also going to be an unexpected twist, a surprise that we don't see coming in the story of Jesus. So in one sense, Jesus is the continuation of a story that has been going on from the beginning. From the very beginning, God has been working toward the same goal, and Jesus is a coherent part of that trajectory. And we see that also in the Old Testament passages that Mark cites in verses 2 and 3 there. He says, as it is written in, the, in Isaiah, the prophet, but then he actually uses a mashup of verses from Exodus and Isaiah and Malachi in his quote there. And so what he's saying is that from Genesis 1, from in the beginning, through the Exodus around 1500 BC, through the days of Isaiah in the middle of the Old Testament, until Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, into the time of Mark in the first century, and into our lives, into us this very morning, God is telling a single story. He has been carrying out a single mission. It is the mission, the story of salvation. Jesus is the continuation, and in fact, he is the culmination of the big story of salvation, which means that Jesus wasn't a backup plan. It wasn't as if God was kind of up in heaven and he said, mm, this whole like laws and sacrifices thing isn't going very well. They're really messing this up. Like, son, you better get down there and work this out. No, Jesus wasn't plan B or C or D or Z after we had messed up the original plan. He was always the point of the story of salvation. Do you know what Jesus' name means? What the name Jesus means? Jesus means God saves. And you know, Christ, by the way, isn't his last name, right? Christ isn't his last name. It is a title. Christ, Messiah, hero. The long-promised hero, the one that we have been waiting for. Jesus wasn't a backup plan. He was the appointed hero of God's plan for salvation from the very beginning, and so if he's not the backup plan of history, don't make him the backup plan of your life. How often do I live from the premise, I can do it myself. I can secure my own righteousness and meaning and hope 
And only when things go terribly wrong do I fall back on my backup plan, Jesus. What if instead I just began my day preemptively falling onto him? I can't save myself. I can't do it. Without you, I'm helpless. I'm hopeless on my own. But Jesus, you are my hero and my salvation today and every day, just as you you have been the hero of salvation through all of history. He's not the backup plan. He is the only plan, the hero that I need to save me. And so we see this, this continuity, right? This continuity with the larger story. Jesus fits within the history of salvation that was from the beginning. He is the long-awaited hero of the whole mission of God. But discontinuity, okay, surprise, plot twist. What if Jesus is not the sort of hero that we expect? What if he's not necessarily the hero that we want, but instead the hero that we need? Jesus is the hero of the story, but as we'll see in this Gospel of Mark, his heroism doesn't manifest itself in the way that we would expect. That might actually be the main point that Mark is trying to make in his book. And it's a point that comes to a head with Peter in Mark chapter 8. Towards the end of Mark chapter 8, Jesus asks his disciples, after he's been ministering for a while, he asks his disciples, who do you think that I really am? And Peter has a great moment, okay? He gets it right. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the hero of salvation that we have been waiting for. And then in the very next paragraph, Jesus starts to tell his disciples about the cross, about his necessary death. And Peter immediately says, no, 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 Jesus. That's that's not how we're going to do it, right? That is not what a hero does. That's not what salvation looks like. And Jesus responds in the strongest possible way. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind God's priorities, but merely human interests. And in other words, you're talking about the sort of hero that you want, but I am talking about the hero and the salvation that you actually need. And remember, if Peter is the one who is giving Mark these stories, who is recounting these stories, to Mark, what does that mean, right? This could have been the most embarrassing moment in Peter's life. Jesus called him Satan. And yet he came to believe that it was one of the most important things that Jesus ever said to him. You don't really understand how salvation works yet, Peter. Every other religion, every man-made way of salvation, if it has a figurehead or a leader, what does that leader do? Generally speaking, he or she offers guidance for how to live a better, more moral life. Popular religious leaders are primarily teachers. They are good life guidance givers. And that seems to be the type of hero that we expect and want. Now, why is that? Because that allows me to maintain the illusion that with just a little help and the right methodologies, I can get it done on my own. If someone will just teach me the right things to do, I can do them. I can achieve my own righteousness. I can be my own hero and save myself. Like Peter, what most of us actually want is a teacher who affirms our independent ability to save ourselves, and that is not Jesus. That is not who he is, and that is not what he came to do. And that brings us to the other key word in verse 1, the word gospel. 
It says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the teaching of Jesus, not the collected wisdom or the good life guidance of Jesus, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel means good news or good tidings, a wonderful proclamation. It's a word that if you've been around for a little while, you're probably familiar with. You've probably heard the word gospel before, but remember, as one of the earliest authors of the New Testament, Mark is one of the first people to use this word in connection with Jesus. And the word that he uses here, the original word euangelion, is one that his original readers would have heard before, but in a very specific context. In Mark's day, this good, word, this good news word referred to a royal herald and the message that he would bring on behalf of a king. So you've heard it in movies and TV shows before, right? Hear ye, hear ye, a proclamation from the king. The messenger, the herald, was called a euangelos, an evangelist. And the proclamation, the good news that they brought was evangelism, gospel, good news, good tidings. And we can actually get even more specific than that. Usually, when these heralds would come to a city with a proclamation, it would be about one of three things. Sometimes they would come and announce, the king is on his way, he is coming to visit your city. Sometimes the herald would run to a city after a military battle and report what had happened. The king is victorious, the enemy has been defeated. And sometimes, this one's kind of my favorite one, sometimes the herald would just remind people that it was the king's birthday. Sometimes he would just say, come celebrate the day that your king was born. And isn't that exactly what Mark is doing here? That's what this book is going to be about. The king, the true king, has finally come. The hero that we need, the long-promised Messiah, is finally invading our world. And the enemy is defeated. Our greatest foes, that triumvirate of evil, sin, the devil, and death, have been dealt a mortal blow and will soon be vanquished forever. The Son of God was born into the world as a human being, and it turns out that his birthday, or rather his rebirthday, his resurrection, is your birthday too. Through him you can be reborn into eternal life. That is the gospel proclamation, the good news that this story tells. Now let's pull all this together. We can paraphrase the first verse of Mark as follows. So begins the joyous proclamation about the hero of salvation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is here. This is the story Mark is going to tell, and it's a story that must arrive at the cross. If you want to read a great companion book to our series, there's a book by Tim Keller called King's Cross. And the reason the book is titled that way, it's about the gospel of Mark, as he says, because the first half of the book of Mark, chapters 1 through 8, is about the king who has come, and the second half of the book, chapters 9 through 16, is about how the king must go to the cross to save us. Why? Why does the story of the hero have to go through the cross? Because that is the salvation that we actually need. If you come to the book of Mark, or really if you come to any part of the story of Jesus, and what you're looking for is a teacher to give you some useful principles to live a better, more moral life, 
you'll probably be able to sort of cram Jesus, a sort of a partial Jesus, into that mold, but you won't understand the real Jesus, the full Jesus, and you certainly won't be able to understand the cross. But if you begin with the cross, if you read the whole story through that cruciform lens, you'll see why Jesus actually came. At the cross, our hero was taking the full penalty that sin deserved. He was dealing with our biggest problem, sin. He bore our sin upon his shoulders so that we could have his righteousness. The hero died so that we could live, and the king went to the cross so that we could be crowned with his life forever. We just sang it together, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him, my living head and clothed in his righteousness divine and through him boldly I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. That's the gospel. Okay, we're like 20 minutes in and we're on verse 1, okay? <laughs> Don't worry, all right? We're gonna, I'm going to sum up the rest of this first passage with one idea, okay? And this is your application to take home with you this week from this per- ver- first passage. Did you notice that in the whole passage, there is only one imperative, There's only one thing that we are told to do in response to the coming of the king, in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you see it? It's in verse 3. It says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. In light of the story that we're about to hear, the journey through Mark that we're about to go on, it says, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way for King Jesus to come in Make his path into your heart as straight and as unobstructed as possible. Now, how do we do that? Okay. I think this passage gives us a number of different ideas, but I want to focus on just one this morning, and it's this idea of the wilderness. The passage says that there's this wild man out in the wilderness proclaiming a wild message. The king is coming, but he's not the king that you expect, and people are going out into the wilderness to meet him. There's this theme of wilderness that runs through the whole Bible. The wilderness is a place that people go. Sometimes they end up there and they don't want to be there, but it's often the place where God brings about repentance and a new and better dependence, and it's often the place where they meet the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what happens here. The people go out to John in the wilderness, and he says, repent, the king is coming. And then he says, when he comes, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, have you, ever, have you ever felt like you were in the wilderness? Maybe some of you feel that way this morning. Sometimes we choose to go into the wilderness, and that can be a good thing for us. Sometimes we're, we, we end up in the wilderness, and we don't want to be there. The, the difficult thing for us about this biblical concept of wilderness and repentance and dependence in the wilderness is that the wilderness is sort of like the spiritual opposite of the South Charlotte suburbs, right? Like, The reason that this wilderness concept is so important is because if someone comes along and says things are not the way that they're supposed to be in this world or in your heart, right? and the kings and the leaders of this world that have been promising you restoration in life, they can't really give you those things. Well, if you're comfortable and you're successful in the city, that can be a hard message to hear and receive and really believe. 
And right here at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Mark and John the Baptist say, you have got to figure out what it looks like for you to get into the wilderness to really hear the radical and surprising news of Jesus that leads you to dependence and repentance in a new way. And so what I want to challenge you with is what would that look like for you? It might literally mean going into the wilderness, getting out into the woods. It might mean finding a time that's quiet in the morning or the evening. It's quiet in here right now. It wasn't quiet in here when there were like 150 kids in here 20 minutes ago. You know, finding a quiet time to get away with the gospel of Mark, to really meet Jesus. And what it certainly means is asking the Holy Spirit to separate you enough from this world and its kings and its leaders and its promises so that you can hear the stunning message of Jesus and the better promise that he gives. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. If you're here this morning and you don't identify as a Christian and you're still kind of exploring the truth claims of Christianity, I really believe a promise from this passage is that you can ask the Holy Spirit, show me the real Jesus. And if the Spirit is real and if Jesus is resurrected, I think that he will answer that prayer. And if you're here this morning and you've been a Christian for a long time, you have a promise from this passage. You can ask the Holy Spirit, help me to meet Jesus in a new and fresh and wild way. Would you help me to meet him anew in a way that I don't expect, but the way that I desperately need? And he'll answer that prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that over these coming weeks, as we journey through the gospel of Mark, Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would meet us with the truth and with conviction that we need. Lord, we need comfort for the things in this world and in this life that are hurting us, We need conviction about the ways that we need to repent and turn to you in a new and more dependent way. Lord, and we need your help, your counsel, to grow us into the people that you're calling us to be. Would you help us to see that Jesus is the hero that we need? We pray all these things in his name. Amen.